Good morning, everyone. I'm thankful for another day and really thankful for the hope that this week brings to us because, of course, today is Palm Sunday. Now, before we get into that, last week I caught a little bit of flack because I was wearing a t-shirt while I was preaching, so this week I decided to spruce it up a little bit and wear a collar for all of you. However, I'd say in my defense, probably at least half of the church is doing church today in your pajamas, so there's that, of course. But let me give a couple of announcements, and then we'll get into today's teaching. Uh, first is just a reminder that next Sunday is Easter Sunday, so I just want to encourage all of us that even though times are weird, and even though we don't physically have church, we should still try to leverage the opportunities that we have to invite other people to join us for church next Sunday. Uh, obviously, everybody's going to be stuck at home on Sunday morning, so you could post something on social media if you have social media accounts. Um, you could text or email a friend and just say, hey, I'd love for you to join my church this Sunday at 10.30 in the morning online. And of course, you can just direct them to apostleschurchsb.org and they're going to be able to click a link and go straight to our video next Sunday uh, as we preach the gospel on Easter Sunday. So uh, take advantage of this opportunity and leverage whatever you have uh, to help get people's attention pointed to the risen Christ next Sunday. I um, also want to just make mention again of giving. Um, of course, you can give online securely and easily. I know uh, more people are giving that way now, uh, which is great, and it's a great way to give. But also, a lot of people are still giving the traditional way and just mailing checks to the church, and we're receiving those checks, um, and that's working out fine too. So feel free to, to give that way as well. But thank you so much, church family, for your continued generosity here at Apostles Church. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. That's where we're going to find our text for this morning's teaching. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So it's Palm Sunday, as I mentioned, and children in many churches around the world would have been walking into church services, joyfully waving palm branches today or devilishly whipping one another with them, depending on who that child was, in an effort to depict what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that young donkey. But instead, they're sitting on the couch with their parents watching preachers like me on a TV screen. But although our experience of this Palm Sunday is different than years past, our hope remains the same. On that first Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was hailed by his followers as the messianic king, as God's promised deliverer of his people. We read of this account in Matthew chapter 21. Here's verses 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Today we join those original disciples in shouting and crying out Hosanna to the Lord Jesus. Now the word originally meant something like save please or please save. It was a cry for help, a cry for deliverance. But by the time Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, the meaning had shifted a little bit. It had come to mean something like, like salvation has come. It was a term of praise and celebration because their king had come and that meant that their deliverance was all but guaranteed. In the same way, uh, for you and I, our king has come and our salvation is guaranteed. 
But the question becomes, what exactly have we been saved from? The Jews at the time of Christ, of course, thought of political or national deliverance. Uh, They were at that time under Roman occupation, and they envisioned their Messiah and their king that God was going to send them coming and reasserting the physical throne of David and creating an empire that was strong and peaceful and prosperous again and driving out the Romans. Of course, that was misguided. That's not what Jesus had come to do uh, when he came to this earth. But we can be misguided too. Lots of people turn to Jesus or look to Jesus to maybe deliver their marriage. They need their marriage to be saved. Or maybe it's Jesus, save my business. Or Jesus, save me physically from this illness that I have. Of course, there's nothing wrong with crying out to Jesus to deliver you from things like that. And uh, it's, in fact, it's right for us to ask God to help us in times like that. But most fundamentally, the Bible tells us that what we need saving from is a certain death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul here is unpacking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and he goes on for like 50-something verses, and then here's his conclusion in verses 54 through 57. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, the great enemy of your life is not your boss. It's not calories. It's not quarantine. The great enemy of your life is sin because sin leads to death. And this is what Jesus rode into Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago to do battle with, sin and death. And in so doing, he ushered in a kingdom of life. And thank God he did, because you and I live in a world of death. And in fact, this is the very thing that Solomon deals with here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, this theme of death. I want to read the passage for us and... uh, Then we'll pray together and we'll get into our message. I titled today's sermon, Live Like You Were Dying. And I want to go ahead and read our passage, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll break it down together. So follow along with me, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same fate for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. We'll just continue with verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. 
For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning on this Palm Sunday that you would minister to our hearts. Lord, as we consider this subject, this theme of death and its reality for every single one of us, Lord, we pray that as we consider these things, that it would make our hearts wise, that it would help us to live lives with wisdom. And Lord, as we think about death Lord, it's going to help us to think about eternal life. It's going to help us to glory in and revel in your grace and in the wonder of the kingdom that Christ has ushered in. It's an unshakable kingdom. And Lord, we're so thankful that in Christ, we are given eternal life. We are given resurrection life so that the grave is not the end for us. And Lord, as we consider these things this morning, We pray that our hearts would once again be led to worship, that cries of hosanna, of praise and adoration would come from our own hearts as we we acknowledge that our salvation has come because our Savior has come. So Lord, speak to us and minister to us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, there's really two halves to today's teaching. Uh, Solomon begins with, the idea of embracing death in verses 1 through 6, and then also in verses 11 and 12. So we're going to begin with that idea. Solomon here is going to help us to understand the certainty of death, and in so doing, he's going to help us to embrace death, to reckon with it and come to grips with it. Benjamin Franklin said, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, Solomon drops the taxes part. Remember, Solomon just came out of a section reminding us that we cannot know or understand everything that is happening in this world. God is up to things that we don't quite understand, and so we can't always make sense out of everything that is happening in the world or even in our own lives. But now Solomon comes to this point in chapter 9, and he says, but do you want to know what you can be certain about? Do you want to know what you can know for sure? You're going to die. We're all going to die. There are no exceptions. In fact, in verse 2, he's going to explain that there are no exceptions. It really doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're wise or foolish. It doesn't matter if you're a religious person or an irreligious person. Listen, friend, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter if you're young right now or you're old. We are all going to die. We've, we've got to get our minds around that. We've got to deal with that. 
Now, biblically speaking, death is not just a natural phenomenon. Uh, Notice in verse 3, he calls death an evil. Um, In other words, death is is a, a, a part of what's wrong in the world right now. Um, this, this point that death is an evil takes us once again back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And remember, in the creation account, God creates everything good. There is nothing evil in God's creation. And he creates this garden called Eden, which means delight. So this is a place of happiness, a place of prosperity, a place of, of peace. And in the middle of the garden, he puts Adam and Eve. And also in the middle of the garden are two trees. One is the tree of life, and the other one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God warns Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if they do, here's what's going to happen. They're going to die. So death is the thing that is at stake if they disobey God. Now, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stop and think about that. Wages are what you earn for your work. Uh, When I was in high school, I got my first job uh, in sales working for a major multinational corporation. I worked drive through at McDonald's. And I earned minimum wage. I think it was like $6.25 back then. But that was what I earned. That was my wage for the work that I did. So when Paul here says that the wages of sin is death, what he's saying is that the thing that you earn through your sin is death. That's what we get because of our sin. Well, why, why is it death? Why would we die when we sin? Well, because God is perfectly righteous, meaning that God has no moral blemishes. God is pure and he's perfect and he's only righteous. And yet you and I are sinful. It means that you and I are separated from him. The scriptures speak of being alienated because of our sin. We're alienated from God. And what that means is that you and I are cut off from the true source of life, God himself. This leaves us in a state of, of death. And of course, this is not good. To put it the way that Solomon does, it's an evil, it's a terrible travesty, but it's the situation that we find ourselves in. Death is a symptom of our broken world. That humans universally die points to the fact that humans are universally sinful and that humans are in universal need of a savior. You and I need rescue. Otherwise, we are destined for death, both physically and spiritually. And so, going back to Romans 6.23, we read of this free gift of God that he gives to us in Christ Jesus. God's looking at the world that he created. He's looking at the pinnacle of his creation, human beings who he loves with all of his heart. And he says, look, if I gave you what you've earned, it would be death. So, I can't do that. What I'm going to do, because I love you, is I'm going to offer you a free gift. The Bible calls this grace. It's getting what you don't deserve. I'm going to offer you a free gift. And what is the gift? It's the gift of life, eternal life that becomes ours in and through Jesus Christ. 
Thus, when we think about Palm Sunday, we're thinking about Jesus the King ushering in a kingdom of life in the midst of a world of death. Here's Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or here's Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice that in both of these passages, Jesus brings us from death to life. Palm Sunday is about Jesus being received as the messianic king of God's people, the king who saves us from sin and death. Let's pick back up in verse 4. Solomon here in verse 4 is now going to continue after pointing out the universality of death He's going to say that, look, I prefer life over death. He says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. But then here comes the twist. He says, it's better to be alive. Well, why? Why why is it better to be alive? His answer, a little shocking, he says, well, because you know you will die. He calls this awareness hope. It's hope that living people have, that they know they will die. And the knowledge that we're going to die uh, is hopeful, or gives us hope in at least two senses. First, it's because the living can reckon with the reality of death and prepare themselves for it. Remember in chapter 7, verse 2, Solomon talked about how it's better to go to a funeral. He said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, when you go and you have to contemplate your own mortality, when you have to think about and be confronted with death, you take it to heart. And you, you begin to prepare yourself for death. You start thinking about death. You start thinking about eternity and the afterlife. But secondly, um, an awareness of our own death acknowledging our own death, being confronted with it, helps us to begin to live more wisely or to live better in the present. In verse 6, he reminds us that the dead have no more share in all that is done under the sun, whereas the living still have a chance to live life well. In verses 11 and 12, he reminds us that everything in our lives is uncertain. He says the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So anything else in life is uncertain. I mean, who could have predicted even a month ago that we would be in this place right now? That we would be uh, quarantined to our homes, that 
the, the, the world would essentially come to a grinding halt. None of us would have seen this a month or two months ago. Everything is unpredictable, but there's one thing that is certain, and it is, again, that we will die. The only uncertainty related to your death is when it's going to happen. Solomon points out that it could suddenly fall upon you in verse 12. Therefore, Solomon's teaching here is going to go on to say, then we ought to live like we are dying. So he taught us that we should be people who embrace death. The next thing he's going to focus on is enjoying life in verses 7 through 10. Once you've embraced the reality of death and prepared yourself for it, you can begin to enjoy life while you have it. A number of years ago, there was a country song by Tim McGraw titled, Live Like You Were Dying. How do I know that? Well, I know some people who like country music. Okay, I confess, I like a little bit of country music myself. Tim, in this song, he describes this guy who's in his early 40s, and he gets this terrible news from the doctor. It's a terminal diagnosis. He knows he's going to die. And McGraw asks him, like, what did you do when you got that kind of news? And the man says, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull name. Some of you might be singing the song right now. He goes on to talk about how he loved deeper, how he spoke sweeter. He gave forgiveness to people that he had been denying it to. Um, He sought to be a better husband, a better friend. And then finally he says this, he says, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Solomon's essentially saying the same thing. He, he hopes that you and I would get the chance to live like we were dying because guess what? We are all dying. And again, when, when you finally come to grips with that reality and, and, and you deal with it, and you square up to it, it allows you to start actually living wisely and to start doing the things that you should be doing and prioritizing your life and refocusing on the things that actually matter. I think one of the amazing things about this shelter, in, or sh- uh, shelter at home order that we've all been enduring is that for so many people, it is bringing into focus what actually matters in life. I mean, all of our idols are being toppled right now. We're realizing that the stock market isn't where we can put our hope. The economy is not where we can put our hope. Our careers, our success, our status, none of that stuff really matters right now. Even our own health, our own government, which seems so powerful and so capable, has in many ways been left struggling to find solutions. And it's caused many people to say, you know what really matters? just what's going on in the four walls of my own home. It's my relationships with my family. It's the simple things in life. It's my faith in God. Solomon here is hoping that we'd get to that place. It doesn't necessarily require a global pandemic to do it, um, but this is certainly helping. Solomon's hoping that we would learn to redeem the little time that we have here and now and enjoy life as much as possible. Now, you might be getting a little bit tired of hearing this encouragement. This is the fifth time in the book, perhaps even the sixth time, that Solomon is saying, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy these simple things in life. It might be sounding a little bit like a broken record, but 
you got to understand that for Solomon, this is a major key to getting the most out of life under the sun, life east of Eden. Yes, it's true that life is full of disappointments and it's full of heartbreaks, which remind us that this is not the way the world is supposed to be. But it's equally true that life is also sprinkled with joys and delights, which show us that this isn't the way things were meant to be either. Again, God created the world good. And the joy that we have, the happiness that we find in certain things in this life, remind us that the way things are, the brokenness of the world is not the way that it's meant to be. And not only that, but every time you and I enjoy these simpler things in life, these little gifts that God has given to us, it's like we're having an appetizer um, that, is, that is sort of giving us that first taste of the feast that you and I are going to enjoy in eternity with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, what specifically are we called to do here in this section of enjoying life? Notice that he says, go. This is very urgent at this point. This is him telling us, like, you got to do this. Go do this. Well, what do we go do? He says, have a feast with good food and great wine. Enjoy an awesome meal. Good food, great wine. I'm sorry to all the diehard Baptists that we've got here, but the Hebrew word there is not translated grape juice. Enjoy good food and great wine. Have a feast is what he's saying. And then notice he says, God has already approved what you do. In other other words, these things are good gifts that God has given to us, and he smiles upon your glad reception of them. It's sort of like when a parent gives their child a really cool present. Like maybe think about if you gave your son or your daughter a brand new bike, and you walk them outside, and you tell them to open their eyes, and maybe the bike's leaning up against the garage or something, and they open their eyes, and they see this new bike, and they're so excited about this gift, and then they turn to you, and they go, is it okay if I go ride it? And as a parent, you're like, well, of course it's okay. I wouldn't have gotten you the bike if I didn't want you to go ride it and go enjoy it. Listen, God blesses us with these things in our lives for our happiness. The resources that he's given you to go and pay your rent or your mortgage and have a warm place to sleep at night. Uh, The food that you're able to eat. And as we're going to go on and see in a moment, the company that you're able to keep. These are things that God has given to you for your joy. And when we receive them that way, it honors and glorifies God. In fact, even verse 8 symbolizes joy. He says there in verse 8, to let our garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. You can contrast that particular look with a person who is covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes on their head, which was a symbol of mourning or repentance. And Solomon here is not symbolizing that kind of a life. He's symbolizing a life of joy right now, white garments and oil flowing down your head. Um, He's saying, look, God wants you to enjoy your life and the good things that he's given to you. In verse 9, he narrows in on enjoying life with your spouse or your family. 
And notice that Solomon envisions here marital bliss. This is not just the two of you kind of cohabitating together so that each of you can pursue your own individual goals. No, no, no. This is you two milking all of the fun and joy out of life together that you possibly can. It's an intentional pursuit of joy together as a couple. Now, unfortunately, many married people are looking for happiness and joy and satisfaction out there, outside of their home, outside of their marriage. But research, both from the Bible and from the broader secular world, is pointing to the lion's share of our earthly happiness coming from in here, inside a healthy marriage. After talking about the challenges that marriage can present, journalist Belinda Luscombe in a piece that she did for Time magazine titled The Marriage Plot wrote these words. But for those who make it through, studies are increasingly showing there are deep rewards. Married people tend to be wealthier, healthier, and more sexually fulfilled than unmarried people. And some researchers argue that happily married people are happier than they've ever been in history, end quote. Now, of course, the key there is happily married people. And that's what Solomon's envisioning here. But it takes intentionality. It takes focus. It takes being committed to one another and committed to honoring each other, serving each other, and loving each other. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Well, what about those who don't have a spouse? Are they excluded from enjoying life? Of course not. Jesus was unmarried, and Jesus was certainly the happiest and the most fulfilled person who has ever walked planet Earth. But here's what Jesus was so good at. Jesus was so good at enjoying the companionship of deep friendships with other people, and more foundationally, enjoying his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And he cultivated those relationships and invested himself in those relationships. And what's so cool is that those, both of those areas are areas that the unmarried have even greater potential than married people do to lean into and to cultivate. This is what uh, Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he talks about the advantages of actually being unmarried, that single people have an undivided devotion to the Lord. And so for single people who aren't married, maybe don't have kids yet, you can still be leveraging the principles here by investing deeply in quality friendships and, of course, cultivating a depth of relationship with the Lord. I personally love the timing of this because notice how simple these instructions for a joyful life are. And notice that they're available to you inside your house, meaning these are quarantine-proof. Eat a good meal, have a feast, Enjoy your family or your friends, those that are closest to you. It's amazing. Now, the last one will take a little bit more creativity in quarantine, but we can make it happen to look at verse 10 again. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Solomon here is challenging us to work and play hard. Doing it with all of our might is really calling us to concentrate our energies and our focus on the task at hand. Again, concentrating your energies and your focus on the task at hand. Interestingly, um, this, is, this is 
part of the way that we increase our happiness or our joy. According to research done by a couple of Harvard psychologists, Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, adults spend only about 50% of their time in the present moment. Only 50% of their time in the present moment. Now, some of us, that might be way too generous, but on average, half of our time in the present moment, which means that we are mentally checked out for the other half of the time. Well, what they did in their research is they measured levels of happiness with people's minds wandering, and what they discovered was this, and I quote, they said, when we are in the present moment, we are also at our happiest no matter what we are doing. And they noticed that even the mundane things of life, like washing dishes or doing chores, when people were focused in and their minds were not wandering as they did things like that, their happiness levels were increasing. And so Solomon here is calling us, no matter what our hand finds to do, no matter what we have in front of us to give ourselves to do during the day, he's saying, do it with all of your might. Focus in, concentrate on those things, devote yourselves to them, and work hard at them. Now, all of us have different callings in our lives. All of us have different career paths. Um, Some of us are called to be parents or grandparents. Some of us are called to be spouses or sons or daughters or brothers or sisters or friends or members of the same church or co-workers. We all have different callings in our lives that God has given to us. And also, all of us have different activities and hobbies. Well, our life is most rewarding when we give ourselves to those callings with all of our might. Now, again, in quarantine, some of us are struggling to find things to give ourselves to. Some of you are like, I'm giving myself to binge-watching Netflix TV shows. We've got to be careful with that. I wouldn't say there's not a place for that, but of course, I would say that binge-watching Tiger King probably adds little value to your existence. But we've got to be creative. There are still things that we can be giving ourselves to right now while we're in quarantine. Again, of course, our families and enjoying our families. Maybe making phone calls, maybe spending more time in prayer, maybe reading through the Bible or reading other great books. Uh, There's so many things that we can be giving ourselves to right now and glorifying God through. Solomon reminds us, and this is so key, that we all have limited time to do the things that we are called to do do in our lives. Uh, Obviously, as you talk to older people, they, they talk about how life, it's gone by in a flash. You think you've got all this time ahead of you, but it just goes so fast. And Solomon says, look, there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going So he's saying, look, this is your window. This is your window of opportunity. You've got to act now. Again, that's the urgency. Go and do these things, he's saying. So in the here and now, we enjoy life and we receive any blessings that we have as good gifts from God. And we redeem the time doing whatever our life's work is with all of our might. In closing, I want to draw our attention to the word Sheol. As we've seen, Solomon does not have a fully developed theology of the afterlife in this book. He does tell us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. That's chapter 3, verse 11. He also tells us that our souls go back to God or return to God. That's chapter 12, verse 7. And he tells us that all of our works are going to be 
are going to be judged by God. That's chapter 12, verse 14. But beyond that, he's totally silent about the afterlife. Sheol in the Old Testament, as we see here in Ecclesiastes, is simply the place of the dead. It does not make distinctions between the righteous or the wicked. It's not equivalent to our concepts of heaven and hell. Um, it, it's more sort of how we talk about the grave today. You might say, all people go to the grave. That's, that's how Sheol is thought of. It's just simply the place of the dead. Although the Old Testament hints at it, it's not until you get into the New Testament that we have a solid concept of the resurrection. And here's what we know from the New Testament. Because Jesus journeyed through judgment, death, and resurrection for us, those of us who have put our faith in him will share in his resurrection life. And so embracing death helps us to make the most out of life before the grave, which we were just talking about, but embracing death also helps us to make the most out of life beyond the grave. By squaring with the reality of death, we look beyond the grave to the hope of life eternal in the kingdom of Jesus. And when we have that hope secure, we can be content with whatever comes our way in the here and now. It's been well said that for the non-Christian, this life is as good as it gets. But for the Christian, this life is as bad as it gets. What a great thought for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. So I would ask, what about you? Where are you at in all of this? Are you a non-Christian? If you are, you better milk this life for all you can get out of it. Or better yet, the best thing you could possibly do if you're not a Christian is stop looking to the things of this world to deliver for you in this life. Quit placing all of your hope and all of your expectations in this life. This is a world that is passing away and it's a world that is marked by the reality of death. Rather, put your hopes, put your trust, put your expectations, put your future joy in the hands of the risen Christ who has ushered in a brand new kingdom and it's a kingdom of life everlasting. For those of us who do that, we will never, ever be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the word that you have given to us. God, we thank you so much that your word makes wise the simple, that your word guides us on the path of life and life everlasting. And God, we're so thankful that your word forces us to face all of the realities of life. So many people want to live in denial of death and their own death, and yet your word confronts us with its reality, and it's not to scare us, it's to prepare us, and we're so thankful for that. And Lord, I pray that today as we've sat and considered this subject, the fact that all of us are going to die, Lord, I pray that it would cause all of us to prepare for our own death to put our faith and trust in Jesus, the one who went to the grave for us, who died for our sins so that our sin can be removed and then rose again for our justification so that in him we can share in his resurrection life. In him we can live life eternal. Lord, we're so thankful for that. Lord, we also pray that as we've thought about 
the fact that we are going to die and we don't know when that day is going to come, I pray, Lord, that it would cause each of us to live in our lives with more wisdom, to live redeeming the time because the time is short, to focus in on and concentrate our energies on the things that really matter, a great meal with the people that we love, investing in our families, investing in our friendships, investing in our church family, cultivating our relationships with you, Lord, and devoting ourselves with all of our energy to our life's work. Could be raising young, young children. It could be serving our local church. It could be a particular career that we've been called into. A myriad of callings that we all possess in our lives. Lord, help us to work at all of these things, whatever our hand finds to do with all of our might. And as we do these things, Lord, we pray that in the midst of a broken world that is filled with a lot of disappointments, that we would be a people who are marked by incredible joy and incredible gratitude for your goodness toward us. So Lord, bless us this week as we journey through Holy Week and we reflect on your journey toward the cross and toward the empty tomb. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you, church. Happy Lord's Day.